Welcome to this flashback episode of the Lawyer Life Podcast brought to you by my family vacation in the Sunshine State. This week, we flash all the way back to September of 2018 when Darlene and I were asking ourselves, how does fear affect the practice of law? Fun programming note, this episode marked the true launch of the Lawyer Life podcast, so fear was quite a natural subject for Darlene and I to chat about. We'll be back next week with a new episode, as always, when we chat less stress and more fulfillment. Talk soon. Welcome to LLP, a podcast for lawyers. Each week, we cover a topic to help ourselves and other lawyers navigate our days with a little less stress and ideally, a lot more fulfillment. On today's episode, we're talking about fear. Ah! We're asking ourselves, is being scared actually a good thing at times? I'm Mike Anderson. And I'm Darlene Tonelli. Hi, Darlene Boo. Did I scare you? <laughs> you did, actually. I'm always uh, I'm always watching for what you're going to do in that intro hello and wondering what it yeah, will be. I'm sure people hate it, but it's part of the DNA of the thing now. So, you know, we just can't go back. It's impossible. I have to say hi to you in a tacky way every time we talk. I'm totally fine with that. Um, I know that I griped a couple episodes ago about early Halloween, but by the time this guy goes up, we won't be too far away. So it's an appropriate subject. It'll be like, you know, kind of a month away. People are starting to get their costumes ready. So we're talking about fear and being scared. Slightly different than Halloween level fear. Oh, I thought we were just going to talk about Halloween today on the podcast. Like, <laughs> we could do that. Are you going to be a ghost? Are you going to be a skeleton? <laughs> I want to dress up. My favorite costume of all time was uh, my husband and I went as Axel and Slash. And we really went all out for the Guns N' Roses costume. We had the snake. We had the top hat. We had a plastic guitar, the bandana. Was so great. Yeah, that's good. Have you seen Coco, that movie? No. Oh, it's a good watch around Halloween. It's good. It's animated. It's like a kids' movie, but it's probably too scary for your kids your age. Anyway, okay. So we're talking <laughs> about fear and being scared as lawyers. Why? Why is this something important to talk about today? Well, I introduced this topic because when I woke up this morning, I felt fear. And I will trace that fear to the fact that we are actually launching this podcast publicly as opposed to just doing it for uh, nine episodes for fun to see if we can podcast. We've had a series of insiders who have been watching or listening during the soft launch period. And so, you know, they got the inside scoop on this thing. But we're going to have hopefully some more people join us as we actually start to promote this baby. So, yeah. I think I was, you know, it's natural. We're putting ourselves out there a little bit. Naturally, naturally be scared. I think we're putting ourselves out there for sure in that our personalities are going to be um, more evident, but also just this is not the norm. I don't think for, for communications as lawyers, talking honestly about fears, <laughs> mistakes, worries about making a mistake, the types of things that I, I know from anecdotal conversation plague, plague everybody in the profession, or maybe not everybody, perhaps there are some, some people for whom this will not resonate, but this, we are really speaking to people for whom it will. And um, yeah, it gives me a little bit of pause. But part of what we talked about when deciding to do this was we wanted to feel that because that's what our creative clients feel when we're yeah. um, helping them launch something. And it, it is not uh, not to be taken lightly. And I'm definitely feeling that today. 
The other thing I was worried about is that I had to get my dog Rosie to uh, sign a release for all the, the uh, health information. Yeah, we, exactly. we revealed her- so much health information about her that's personal on this podcast. So <laughs> she, you know, we negotiated over a period of weeks. We finally, you know, landed five treats in exchange for the signature on the on the release form. So I'm excited about that. That was wow. that was hanging over my head. You know that Rosie and her tough negotiating skills. She's, oh man, it's you know sometimes she just sits there and doesn't even say, say a word, and you're just it's hard. Wow. It's hard. It's like it's like it's like negotiating with a dog at times. Wow, it would be much like that. Yes, and you're like one treat, no, two treats. Okay, fine. Yeah, that's it. You have to catch her when she's hungry. That's what I've that's what I've learned. <laughs> it's a good lesson in negotiation. Any okay, yeah, and so um, so here we are. We're, we we both wake up this morning in terror because we're going to ask people to listen to this uh, thing this uh, that that we've just been putting online uh, for the past couple of weeks, I guess a couple of months. Um, and why is it? Do you think uh, perhaps what is fear? You know, why is it good to be scared? You know, that's what we're I guess what we're trying to accomplish. Today. What what are we understanding to be fear? Maybe first. Well, I think I said on an earlier podcast, which people can listen back to now that this is uh, now that we're going out there. Um, I did You're say I'm going to listen to the whole catalog. Book off your weekend. Get your yes. listening ears ready. Get it going. Um, in an earlier episode, I said that Tony Robbins had had called fear um, type A people's form of stress or word for stress. Or sorry, stress is type A people's word for fear, and I think that that is a big part of it. Um, I also think that it's just the unknown. You know, I have a magnet Mm -hmm. on my fridge that says life begins at the end of your comfort zone. And for me, that has been so true. It's just, if I'm comfortable, you know, it's okay. Um, but I, I really almost thrive at this point on being in a position of a little bit of discomfort because, um, I don't, I just think if I'm comfortable, it means I'm not pushing myself. Yeah. I like that. I like that unknown bit. That's like, what why jaws was so good and people always say jaws is like a monster movie you know thrives so much because you don't see the shark for such a long time and it's just kind of hanging out there and so then your your imagination can it can make it seem bigger or scarier than it really is and i think that happens to us in the profession a lot where um you know whether it is actually in you know the legal work or perhaps in uh, undertaking a brand new endeavor <laughs> like making a legal podcast uh if you don't know what the thing is and you haven't you know gone through the cycle of it uh once before it can seem a lot more intimidating and scary than perhaps it is uh when you know the shark emerges from the water and you're like okay we can kill that thing but I think it's one of the things in, in our profession is this idea that uh, really what we're up against is nobody talks about that. So everybody sits in their office being worried about it. There's a deep culture within, you know, every organization. And I think this is somehow, you know, it's important that we, we have it. Um, it's important that we have a healthy, I think, healthy fear of making a mistake, which keeps us trying to do our best at all times. That is not, I don't think, something that we should be worried about. I think Productive that's paranoia. Mean, productive paranoia. I think that's right. I think that makes good sense. And I think that an employee or a lawyer who is concerned or cares about not making a mistake, that is totally great, in my opinion. I just think that where the where the problem comes in is this idea, fake, that no one makes mistakes. Mm-hmm. 
you know, I think you should definitely avoid making a mistake. I think you should be mindful of it. I think you should be always considering how to best give your, you know, most excellent advice. Um, but you shouldn't be sitting in your office thinking, oh my God, you know, no one ever makes mistakes in this profession. If I make one, it means dot, 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 insert yeah. uh, self-defeating statement here. <laughs> I got some great advice in the first couple years of my career. And I honestly don't know if I read it somewhere or if someone told it to me. So credit to um, somebody who I am apologizing to. Um, and they said, uh, when you sit down and you're about to work on a project, you need to figure out if, it, if you're building a shed or if you're building a grand piano. And that should inform you know, how, in this case, how scared you are, what your productive paranoia level should be. If you're building a shed and you understand that it's, you know, just to throw some crap into and it's going to live outside and if it falls down in three years, that's okay. Then obviously you're not going to be as diligent as you are, you know, building the grand piano where the, the tiniest mistake could, could be of such an incredible consequence. And that's, that frames up, um, a lot of the conversations that I lead with clients is to understand, what they're looking for me to build and having a conversation about the risks inherent. And like, if this is a shed, this is what it looks like. And, and, um, that's been helpful for me because not everybody doesn't always want you to build a grand piano. And it's sometimes the projects don't call for that. And it, it would be ridiculous because you're going to be charging someone five or six or seven times the cost that they otherwise, uh, can want you to, to be you know, spending on that. Well, and sometimes the advice then gets watered down because it's so worried about covering, you know, the lawyer oh, yes. less about yes. the client. Um, I think that's something as a profession we can move towards improvement on. Um, maybe the more we talk about stuff like this, you know, I think it's, um, we don't need to impose this fear on our clients. You know, mm -hmm. we can try to deal with it in ourselves. And this is kind of what I'm talking about in, um, the next stage of where I'm going with our blog that uh, we sometimes reference in this podcast, but I'm going to be talking about, you know, why does it matter to deal with all this stuff? Like, first of all, we talk about it, honestly, we, we put ourselves out there, we say, okay, yep, we have some fears sometimes and that's okay. And uh, you know, we have to deal with them and doing so will make us better lawyers. And my personal view, which will come out in the next blog series is the world is very much changing. I mean, we all have almost, you know, full access to information now. So we have to get so much better about dealing with our, our tools to analyze all that information, like our wisdom, our, our um, getting ourselves out of the way, improving our mental game, improving our resilience. This stuff is all absolutely fundamental to where our profession is going. So I don't think that talking about this is just a, you know, it's not just a share session. It's not uh it's not a group counseling session. Although I'm like I down on my couch right now. So comfortable. <laughs> you and Rosie. Got my Kleenex yeah, beside me. Strangely better after these uh, these podcasts. Hopefully other people do too. But anyway, I think it's it's an important topic to talk about. So what was your when you started practicing, what was your biggest fear or what was what came up for you? Where did where did you hit fear first, maybe? Yeah. So I I think it was it was part of everything that I did. Uh, for the first at least, man, year of my job, I suppose. Like I was, I, I, I didn't specialize straight out when I, after I was called um, and I was, you know, I started out as a generalist. So that was very difficult and still proves to be to a degree today when 
um, you know, you're having to not just learn because you're starting out, but also learn up to like a dozen different areas of law as you're, as you're actually, you know, as they say, you know, you're building the plane as you're flying it. Like that's what I was doing, but also learning how to build, build a plane to begin. <laughs> so, um, it was, uh, yeah, certainly challenging happily, of course, you know, the way that, uh, this practice works is that there's a number of experts that you can call on for, you know, when you get to the really complicated stuff. Um, but there is that level of work that I was expected to do from the outset. And just as every, new lawyer is. And that's very difficult for a number of reasons. Number one, you're still learning. And number two, um, there's an expectation uh, that you are good and that you know what you're doing because no one goes to somebody for an answer unless they think that person has the answer. Uh, and number three, uh, you're, you're beginning a new profession. And so there's so much stress because it, you're starting to build a reputation, right? And, and every step you take, um, you know, blades you, at least it feels down a direction that uh, that reputation is being solidified. So there's a number of pressures that come along. And, um, you know, I, I would say that it was, you know, normal for me to be very, I suppose, scared or to have fear about whether this was the right way to do things or the right way to word things. Um, and am I creating something that is, isn't right? And that's, uh, you know, can be helpful. It definitely motivates you to learn and check and double check and triple check. Um, but also, you know, it, it wears on a person, I'd say. Do you think that you and I are just more afraid than the average lawyer or do you hear no. this in your circles as well? No way. Yeah. I don't think that we're unique. I think that it would be, I, I, I don't want to support the fear. I don't want it to make it seem like it's imperative and that it can't, you can't be successful without it. But if I just waltzed into my first year practicing law and was overconfident and didn't wasn't motivated by the the things I just outlined, um, I think I would have made more mistakes, uh, and that could have consequences that were would be possibly bad for me or for my clients. And so, I think it's important. I think it's something that uh, nearly every every new lawyer must deal with. And I, I frankly don't see how they couldn't. Like, do you see a way that you could start out in this profession and not be scared? Definitely not. And I, I do think, I mean, we were told, I, I was a student at two large law firms and we were told at one of them, in a, which I thought was amazing, almost the first week we were told, look, if you make a mistake, please tell someone immediately. Do not be a hero. Never think that, you know, what we don't want to know or that you should try to cover it up. We expect that as a student, you are learning and we want to know everything that happens. And I thought that was just brilliant. Um, and it set the right tone for us. And I, I don't know how often people, you know, went and reported things. Um, but the culture from that minute was at least set up. And then it was up to the individual person to figure out if, if that spoke to them and if they would, would do that. Um, but I, maybe firms are even better about saying that today. I don't know, but I did think that at the time that was a, a positive move. Um, and as far as the fears, I mean, I definitely felt the fear of not doing, I didn't, I didn't feel the fear of not having the answer. Cause I did understand that there was some level of sometimes the lawyer knew the answer and wanted to see, you know, how your research skills were, or they wanted you to just do the work. Um, and I, I've spoken before on this podcast about one situation in which I did get the answer wrong because of a of wrong assumption right at the beginning of a very long memo. 
Um, and that was an absolutely formative experience. And I will never want to have the feeling that I felt that day ever again. If that never shows up again, I would be very happy. Um, but I didn't take it to mean that I couldn't practice law. I took it to mean, you know, and, and this is the way that the partner explained it to me. They said, you know, we're taking the time to teach you this because it's an important skill. It's, it's a normal thing for a, a new lawyer to do and don't do it again. And, you know, they, it was mentoring and that's part of our profession. That's, that, and that's, I, was, I was just going to say, that's the, you know, it's, you know, it's me. It's the same as my daughter learning to walk and me letting her walk, but be ready to catch her. Right. Uh, if, you know, mm-hmm. if she's falling off a ledge. And so that is, I think the, the really important way to support somebody who is starting out, who is experiencing that fear, at least they have somebody that is the safety net. Right. Um, but not everybody has the safety net. Not everybody is in the environment of, uh, you know, a formal larger firm structure where you're, you're an associate who gets a, you know, uh, an assignment from a senior partner. And then, you know, in the example you've given, and I had the same, uh, you know, sort of uh, experiences, you then sit in a chair across from them and explain your whole rationale and go through the thing. There's some people who don't have that direct access and just have to do the work and trust themselves. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, that's the tightrope walking, I guess, scenario <laughs> or whatever. Uh, that's a lot tougher um, and, and more fear inducing. And so, I think as professionals uh, who are in a, a you know years in and maybe more comfortable, it is something that I think we should focus on of reaching out to y- younger people in the profession uh, and making sure that you know you're you're letting know I'm a phone call away if you just need you know a second set of ears uh, or <laughs> I don't think people say that um, <laughs> second set of eyes what <laughs> no another oh. brain on this whatever. Uh, is the thing that people say that I'm not finding. Uh, another brain. It, another brain is good. Yeah. Do people actually say that, darling? <laughs> they do. Yes. Yeah. Definitely okay. they say second set of eyes. I don't think they say second set of ears, but uh, that's appropriate for a podcast. So podcast. that's totally fine. You're in podcast mode. Um, oh, Mike. The yeah. one thing I would say too is that I was very, uh, I believe that some, when you're doing high level work or you're doing difficult files or you're doing something new, Really, I, I spend a lot of time in my practice doing new things. There's no obvious answer. You know, there's not the case on point. The issue's never been dealt with. The The technology didn't exist before. You know, mm-hmm. the issues are dealt with five years after you're trying to deal with them properly for a, a new technology company or a startup. Um, and I find I've, be, I've developed a certain level of peace around that. And just to say, okay, I'm doing interesting complex and I, I hate the word complex because oh i have a grape i just thought of a grape oh okay. write it down remind me remind me i have some trouble thinking of grapes so we always do goods and grapes at the end of this podcast so i have a comp i have a grape about complex um so i will not use that word but i um when you're doing things that are worthwhile and you care about them and you're you're putting yourself out there to the max for a client i don't think it's I don't think you can do it without feeling fear. I don't think that people, you know, Eddie Vedder doesn't go on stage at the O2 in London without feeling butterflies for the first many years of his career, for example. You know, if you're doing something really worthwhile with a big impact, it's going to feel scary. And if it doesn't, maybe you're not aiming high enough. Yeah. And that's part of the magic, right? Like the the musician, the rock star example, I think is a great one because once, once it stops becoming... Interesting. That's a horrible word too. I'll, I'll, 
<laughs> once, it's, once you're, just, once you're not motivated by getting on stage and it just becomes normal to be in front of 20,000 or 100,000 people, I would hazard to guess, not being in that situation, believe it or not, uh, but I would hazard to guess that you kind of feel like you need to hang them up at that point. That if you're, you know, and that's that's just evidence that you need to keep kind of, you know, pushing yourself to get to new places so you can experience those butterflies and and you know really feel alive in the in the work you're doing. So so there there is a good side to this sort of thing. I, I it seems to be. I think so. And I, there is a good documentary on the Foo Fighters on Netflix that I recommend on that point. It shows even though Dave Grohl, lead singer of the Foo Fighters, was the drummer in Nirvana, he still had to build his band from scratch afterwards and prove himself. And he started in small venues and they toured like nine months a year or something. And then the the trajectory of the documentary is to show how they got to bigger and bigger venues and how he felt beforehand and how he pumped himself up and, you know, not un, unlike, although on a much bigger scale than some of the things we do, like a negotiation, you know, it, it has the same effect personally, because that's what he's supposed to be doing. And my whole thing is, I believe I'm supposed to be doing law and these negotiations and helping clients achieve results. And it's worth it then for me to feel afraid on their behalf or, you know, putting myself out there, taking taking a risk or not knowing what the answer will be because you don't really and lawyers aren't so good with not knowing the answer to things no but i think what the fear does at least for me in the examples that you're giving is drives you to have to be prepared right and that's to the extent the most you can do a lot of the mm -hmm. time and i take my my level of anxiety or fear whatever uh is often um lowered when I, and I'm just like, I'm ready. Like I have it. I know, mm -hmm. I know what the deal is here. Um, and You're controlling the controllables, which is your own piece. Totally. That makes yeah. sense. So, but that, so another reason why, why fear is good potentially, I think the, uh, and you touched on this as well. It's so interesting to come from, you know, this background in law school, which I think you've said before, or I said it just basically like takes any risk tolerance you ever might have had and just lowers it to zero. Uh, and and what I have found is the more I work with uh, entrepreneurs and really enterprising people who accept that risk is part of, you know, effectively anything and and are just so brave in the face of that, it's really incredible to see those people um, do so well. And I think that it, what's interesting is that it certainly has brought me uh, up from that zero that law school installed in me to understand that, you know, fear, risk, all those things are just, you know, part of the rules of the game, basically. And it's motivating. Well, and it's useful too, when you see that risk management and risk tolerance doesn't always lead to success as a company. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, like I think that's exactly. something that I've seen over and over is that, you, you know, companies take a lot of risks. I mean, Amazon, for example, one of the biggest companies, they have taken a lot of risks. They didn't get there because they're, you know, doing shying away from every possible new thing that could be scary. They're putting drones out doing deliveries. They're buying grocery chains. They're, you know, these are not all easy decisions. Like Starbucks gives health employees or health insurance to all their employees. That's very unusual in the States. Um, that, or I guess at that tier, if you read the the Howard Schultz stuff that he's yeah, written. Yeah, and about. he is a very interesting risk taker as well. Like I know that the second time he he came on as CEO, one of the first things, the first two things he did from what I recall 
was number one close all every every starbucks i think it was from like 10 o'clock onward on a certain day all staff were in and retrained and so like the cost when they weren't doing well the cost of not only paying for the employees to be there but not bringing revenue for those full days across all of the stores huge risk and then also i think he brought in every store manager to like an arena in Seattle or something like that and address them to basically give them the state of the union when they were not doing well and laid it laid it bare for them, which is also risky and financially risky. Also, there's the way that he really laid out what was going on and basically said, you know, if we operate as is, in six months, we're, we're, we're going to be done. Um, anyway, he's a very unique and interesting risk taker and, and somebody who doesn't, who certainly does, going back to our other episode, uh, seem to go his own way and, and to his credit, you know, obviously it's worked out well. I find it funny that you and I seem to read the same books, even though it's kind of random to have read the Howard Schultz, uh, all the stuff that he's published. You I read give a- me too much credit, Darlene. I listened to a podcast. Oh, podcast. Okay. <laughs> None of these books. This is a hangover for old people like me. Um, it is good. I mean, one of the things just to sort of tie together the Howard Schultz and the Amazon I think for me, what's been helpful is reading about a lot of entrepreneurs, even Ted Rogers here in Canada, a local example. Um, Most people look at him at the end of his career, but his biography is a very interesting book because it talks about the the trajectory that he had, even though he came from a well-off background, he still mortgaged his house twice to, you know, get Rogers to where it was to buy Fido or to, you know, to get into the cell phone space. There were all kinds of turning points where he definitely was not doing the safe, comfortable thing or resting on his laurels. And I tend to admire those, those stories. So they give me a little bit of, um, yeah. Comfort. One of my favorite biographies is, um, Muhammad Ali's and gave, you know, he was known for, you know, being, people would say arrogant, right? Cause he would go into a fight and say, I'm going to knock him out in the fourth round. And people just thought that that was him being arrogant. But what, you come to learn in the book was that he actually used that as the motivator to train because he was basically instilled fear in himself and set a goal that was so difficult that he knew he would work harder to get there. So he, he basically like put these goalposts out there publicly to say, this is basically, this is who I am and this is how successful I'll be. So he was then intrinsically motivated to get there. So I I'm so interested in that practice and i see it a lot in businesses where setting a you know uh you know we need this to launch by x date um might not only be about because we need it out financially for that reason it might actually be because we just want to really push people and and make sure that we're like doing something um better than we otherwise might have stretching it out over a longer period of time so i i i i think you know it's a, it's it's an interesting practice to try to use fear as a motivator. Definitely. And I think we're doing that, putting this podcast out. It's so, uh, now it's out there. Now we're, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to do things without telling all your friends you're doing them and asking for feedback. And my friends will be kind enough to give me uh, authentic and honest feedback. I am, I'm certain of that. I require it of them and of anyone else who listens to this, by the way. Which we should she say. requires it. It's a requires it's a condition to your listening. It is a condition of my friendship when we enter into our agreements. Um, the one thing I would I'm say. I'm so to happy you, to meet you at this cocktail party. Do you mind signing this little? Could you just sign right here? We call it an FA. <laughs> it's a friendship agreement. <laughs> a friend DA. I've heard that. 
<laughs> we could, oh my God. So nerdy. Strong theme of nerdiness in this podcast, but I think that's okay. Yeah. There's got to be. The one thing I would say too, is that there was a really brave guy at my old workplace and he was the same guy who used to come to the legal department and say, Hey, uh, can you just uh, print me out a contract, Darlene? That was annoying, um, but funny, kind of funny, kind of funny. And then the second thing that he would say was, you know, what would you do if you weren't afraid today? And I thought mm-hmm. about it a lot because I was in charge of doing new licensing and no blueprint, just kind of figuring out what might work and trying to put things out there that would be um, transformative for the industry. And it was scary. You know, that was definitely not comfortable work. Um, but his his statement is part of my life now. I think about it all the time. And often it does change my calculus of what I'm going to do. Like, hmm, I'm feeling afraid. I should probably do it anyway. And in fact, people, there's that quote that says, um, all that you ever dreamed is on the other side of fear or something. I don't know. A theme of this podcast is me getting quotes wrong. Well, me too. We're all <laughs> well, It's Did the you hear about this one thing? Yeah. It's like, so this quote, I realized too that I, uh, anyway, there, there, there are mistakes in here, but that's part of the DNA of the podcast, as you said. So, um, do you ever, have you heard that quote before? What would you do if you weren't afraid? I don't know if that was him or if that's a famous quote. I have no idea. No, I like it though. Yeah. The other thing that is uh, relevant to this topic and in preparing for today and thinking about fear, I listened to a podcast called Facing Fear of Rejection podcast uh, on The Brendan Show. It's a guy called Brendan Burchard. He wrote a book called The Motivation Manifesto, which is excellent. And he says, when you are feeling afraid, what you need to do is take the next right action of integrity. So don't be afraid of rejection. Don't, you know, watch what your fear is telling you not to do and see if it's holding you back from something that is actually you know, integral to who you are. And for me, that's why I feel fear about the podcast, but I put it out because I believe it's important because I think it's tied to where I'm, uh, where I think the world's conversation needs to go. And, um, you know, it's, it makes sense to me. So when I put it up against that standard of like, take the next act of integrity, it fits. So I wouldn't necessarily just advocate blindly rushing into fear in a, in a way that doesn't do that. But I thought that was a useful way to think about it. Yeah, that's very good. It could, it could have been a good, could have saved it. Should we go to goods? We will go to goods, but of course we will do so after this. The Lawyer Life Podcast is brought to you by Inter Alia Law, experienced legal counsel when and where you need us. To learn more about Inter Alia, visit the website at spelled I-N-T-E-R-A-L-I-A-Law.com. Thank you. I think that might have been your best segue in all of our podcasts yet. It might be my only one. I was thinking... I don't know that I've successfully made any segues. The, the only segue that I made have been extremely corny, I think. The talented broadcaster on this podcast is you. I am merely here to uh, fill out the the time and Yikes. find the jokes funny. 
Anyway. I don't know about, but that's kind of you to say. Um, I don't know how true it is. Goods and grapes, we do every episode. Goods are things that we want to promote. Grapes are things that we find annoying. Small things mostly, but um, sometimes Darlene talks about the fate of the world uh, as a gripe. So anyway, uh, do you have any, do you have a good, Darlene? I have a good and a gripe. I'm so excited. Ooh. I have a really consistent a plus. with my A plus. Yay. Um, consistent with my earlier uh, or with my focus on happiness and joy in life. I I do have a hard time thinking of gripes, but have one. This is a long standing gripe, and it has to do with the use of the word complex in lawyer bios on websites. Oh, I want that's this good. to stop. I do as a profession. I assume if I am going to a large law firm to handle my matter, I do not need you to tell me that the matters you handle are complex. And I will throw myself on the sword here and say, I did it myself on this podcast. So I know how tempting it can be to define the matters that we all work on as complex. They are, but I don't think if you, now that I've said this, you will note this when you go. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely, I know exactly what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So that's my gripe. And my good, I even started with a gripe. That for me is big. Um, My good is in Canada, we have the Polaris Prize, which happened this week. And we always try to talk a little bit about music media um, mixed with law on this podcast. So um, the Polaris Prize was won by a classical artist who named Jeremy Dutcher, who rescued a whole bunch of like wax cylinder recordings of his indigenous ancestors music from a long, like hundreds of years ago. And the music is really excellent and fascinating and just such a cool, um, it just makes me happy to live in a place where there's a prize for that, first of all where there's a room full of music industry execs and people who um, generally focus on more, you know, what's going to be a hit and they award the prize by vote to this, this music. And it's good music. It's really good to work to. And it's, uh, it's uh, a learning experience. So that's my good. I was, I was working to it this morning and I think he said in his speech, which I think is true and exciting is that Canada is, is now watching an indigenous renaissance. And that, hmm. it, it, which which is fascinating, and I think it's like our duty to continue to to seek out and support artists like this. I, I um, you know, a tribe called Red has has mm-hmm. has been one of the most well known uh, Indigenous acts out of Canada for the last couple of years. I remember uh, twenty ten, um, so when I started law school in Ottawa, they um, had just started Electric Powwow at a at a bar um, called Babylon that we went to often and. Um, you know, that was something that w- it was an incredible thing to find, uh, and then an incredible thing to attend every, you know, one, I think it was once a month at that time and still to a degree is. So anyway, um, I think to the extent we can, um, uh, support indigenous folks who are making incredible art and other things, it's, uh, the holding on us in a way that we can enrich our lives too. Great. Good. Mm-hmm. Your turn. Uh, okay. I have a small grape that I just realized, and then I have a good, a goody grammar grape. related. No, it's totally not grammar related. Okay, we're branching out. And I don't expect you to have much feedback on it because it's a unique experience. But the past two toasters that I've had (laughs) don't lock down when I put the bread down. And I have to hold it for like five or ten seconds and sometimes it then locks. Wow. (laughs) It's the most gripey thing I think I've ever experienced. 
It's it like really not enough to really do something about to fix until it like doesn't stay down at all. Uh, buy a new toaster i know but that's what we toast? do the first one and now the second one is doing it and it's also like uh anyway that's a grape goody grapey <laughs> this is a message for you to stop eating toast maybe oh, i can't do that no okay no. fair enough um we i really love when we, we buy like um this great local bread that's just great that's i can't um the uh the goody grapey i have which might surprise some folks is birthdays your personal your own personal birthday i just had a, I have a birthday that was mine Happy i love birthday. other people's birthdays it's a, oh thank you it's and I it's important birthdays. to support other people's birthdays i love celebrating other people's birthdays but i'm conflicted with my own birthday why um, because obviously it's fun and good to like have a birthday <laughs> that's and i think people know those reasons but i said i'm a bit gripey about it because i don't like uh the imposition on people to like come to the thing or get you a thing. And that makes me feel awkward. So it, that, so it's a goody gripey. There's, 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 I'm conflicted about it. Well, I don't, I, I can appreciate that. I just think that we, for women anyway, there's a, a strong um, emphasis on not indicating how old you are after a certain age. And, um, you know, I find that I'm, as I get older, a lot of women are like, oh, it's my birthday. Let's not celebrate. I don't want to get older. I do not support that at all. I think, you know, age is great in that you develop wisdom and you're, there's all different value at all different stages of life. Um, so I'm very open about that. And I think that it's good to celebrate every year personally, another milestone, another year, ideally a year in which your health is good, your family's good, life is good. Um, but I, I totally appreciate that other people don't need to be looped on that or make it all about like a big celebration. However, I love when, you know, I get to just be reminded to celebrate friendships and stuff like mm -hmm. that. So yeah. I, I think it's, uh, I can see the goody gripey. Um, I, maybe you just don't like being the center of attention so much. That's, Probably it too. Um, at, speaking it. of the whole lying about your age thing, though, very quickly, uh, one of my neighbors was at the thing that we had, and she came up to me and she's like, "How old are you?" And I said, "34." And she's like, "34 going on," and I was like, "No, I'm 34." <laughs> and, okay, that's and a, like that's hurt me. <laughs> like, how old do I look? Like, yeah, what I, is she talking about? Or and she, she thought I was like, lying about my age. Oh, I see. Yeah. I didn't get that at all. I thought she was trying to indicate that you are more mature than your young years suggest. Oh, that's it. Maybe I was being too, too, too sensitive. But then I was like, I had to tell her the year I was born to make it seem credible. Anyway, uh, so maybe that led to my uh, birthday gripe as well. Okay. I'm just thinking about the year that you were born, and I'm thinking, hmm, I need to confine my uh, 80s references to after. Or, or just make them specific to, like, cartoons. <laughs> okay. Done. I can do that. I think one of the things on this, uh, on, on our recording and on our topics is we're trying to bring the um, your perspective yeah. at 34 with mine, 42. So let's yeah. just uh, get it out there. I said I'm fine with age, but that's the age. And I think that it's useful because I've got – you know, I'm coming at the the perspective a little bit from later in my career and you're coming at it from your 2014 call. Yeah, which is later than most people my age, but I had a career before I went into law. So I'm even younger than that in the law sense. 
I'm it's such true. a you're like a law baby. I'm a little law baby. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a thing. Gosh. No but one's anyway, listening at this point. Nor so are you okay. a baby. No one's listening. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> anyway, thank you for today. This is good. Yes, thank you. Okay, uh, we'll talk again next week. Sounds good. Talk to you then. That's it for this week's episode of LLP. Thanks to Inter Alia Law for presenting the podcast and to Nick Fowler for composing and performing our music. See our show notes for his website. Don't forget, we love feedback. Please comment in the review section or subscribe or like. We'd appreciate it greatly. That's it. Talk soon.